We'll hear argument first this morning in Rumsfeld versus Forum for Academic and Institutional Rights. General Clement. Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. The Solomon Amendment conditions the federal funding of educational institutions on receiving something that any donor would expect, the opportunity to recruit students educated at the funded institutions. That opportunity allows the military a fair shot at recruiting the best and the brightest for the military's critical and vital mission. The federal government does not insist on any predetermined level of access. Rather, it simply asks what other employers receive. Likewise, the uh, recipient schools remain free to criticize the military and its policies. And, of course, they remain free to decline federal funds altogether. As a result of these circumstances, the Solomon Amendment comports with both the Constitution and with common sense. Um, when you say at, uh, it asks what other employers receive, but these institutions, I gather, would not allow other employers who have the same policy uh, against uh, the hiring of homosexuals to uh, interview uh, at their institutions. So you're, you're receiving what other employers in the same situation would receive. Well, I, I think, Justice Scalia, you have to look at the, I think, the statute in two steps. One is, I think it's quite clear that it gives the military a right to gain access to campus as a condition, that it has to, that they have to gain access to campus in order to perform their military recruiting. But it says, I thought it says, the military must have equal access with any other employer. Now, every other employer is subject to the same policy, presumably, of the law school. Well, with respect, Justice O'Connor, I think there's several points to be made in response to that. First of all, I think the Solomon Amendment itself is a recognition that the military is not like any other employer for purposes of its policy and its treatments of homosexuals. And I think that unlike any other employer, the military's policy is a result of a congressional mandate. Well, well, that's that's fine. But you were the one that made the argument that they want the same access as other employers. And that's — And and what what I would say just — want want to make sure what the calculus is at the outset — Well, and, Justice Kennedy, I think the point I would say is, in terms of gaining access to campus, we want to gain access at a level and under circumstances that perhaps some other employer would be excluded. Now, once access is gained, then the question arose under the prior version of the statute, all right, if access is gained, what level of access suffices? And on that second-order question of what level of access suffices, then you look to what is provided to any other employer. And so that's why when I say that, that we don't ask for any predetermined level, we don't ask for seven meetings a year, we don't ask for exor- uh, entrance into the public address system or the email system. We simply say, once you let us on campus, just give us and extend to us an opportunity to recruit on the same terms as others. And that obviously reflects the common sense judgment that the military is competing for the same pool of students that the other employers are competing. Yeah. Your constitutional argument, I guess is does the Constitution require uh, access? Is, does it permit a, a statute which says you have to give access to the military when you wouldn't give access to any other employer? Well, that's exactly right, Justice Breyer. Right. Right. Of course, now, we so then what you're saying, and then what's the answer to that question? Does the Constitution, how, how does it, what's the answer? I, I think there's, I mean, there's the Constitution 
is has no difficulty with such a statute. It is this statute. As I say, there's, there's, if you want to think about it as being preferential entry into campus and then at that point equal access on terms of the, the terms that are extended. However you want to think about it, though, there's no difficult constitutional question here. Well, so, but your, your, your argument it seems to me you, you, you got us off galloping in the wrong direction. The statute doesn't require simply giving the same access that you give to other employers. It requires much more than that. It requires that uh, that they it, it prohibits or cuts off funds if an institution either prohibits or in effect prevents the secretary of military department blah, 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 from gaining access to campuses for purposes of military recruiting in a manner that is at least equal in quality and scope to the access to campuses and to students that is provided to any other employer so it seems to me that the statute demands more than simply you, you give the same access as all other employers. If you allow any other employer, you have to give it to the military in the same manner. I think that's right, Justice Scalia, and I'm, and I'm sorry if I got us off on the wrong foot. I but think it is an important debate. question because the, the, there's an amicus brief that says go read the statute. And really, the statute was not about uh, homosexuals in the military. It was a statute about universities in Vietnam not letting military people on campus. So in the, what, the heart of the statute was a matter which was unique to the military. Now, this is a matter that isn't unique to the military. So why not interpret the statute in the way that the uh, amicus brief suggests in order to avoid a difficult constitutional question? Well, a couple of points, Justice Breyer. I don't think there is a difficult constitutional question to be avoided here, and I'll get back to that whenever I can. As to the statutory interpretation question itself, I think that in, in the proper frame of reference here is probably not the original 1969 version of this, which conditioned only NASA's fund. The original starting point is probably about 1996, when the first version of the modern Solomon Amendment was introduced. And there have been a couple of iterations of it, but I think one, one important reference point is the version that was in force at the start of this litigation. And that's actually reproduced at page 88A of the petition appendix in the district court uh, opinion. And if you look at that, again, it's at 88A of the petition appendix, there would be no question that what is at stake here is access to the campus, and the amicus argument that's being raised is not even available. Because the statute at that point is, I think, in fairness, materially identical except for that last clause, which says in a manner equal in scope uh, to, in character to that of any other institution. So it's clear that when this litigation starts, there, there's no argument available to the amicus that the statute effectively accomplishes nothing. Now, what happens under this version of the statute is a second-order question arises. Okay, the mili- in order to comply with the Solomon Amendment, universities have to give access. They have to allow the military to gain entry and gain access to the students in the terms of the then extant statute. May, the que- may I just interrupt with sure. one brief question? Yeah, would that be true if a university didn't allow any access whatsoever to any employer? As a regulatory matter, the military took the position that if, if, if they simply barred access to no, anybody — Not the regulatory matter, the statute. I think you could read the statute either way on that question, Justice Stevens. They interpreted it to say that there was no equal — there was no obligation to give entry if no employer was on campus at that time. The other thing they interpreted in the statute as a regulatory matter, though, was the second-order question of, all right, if they give some access, is unequal access enough? 
And as a regulatory matter, they said, no, we need access that is equal in character and scope to that provided to any other employer. And then what Congress did in the iteration of the statute that's issued here, which is reproduced starting at page 185A of the petition appendix, is they effectively codified and ratified that regulatory interpretation by adding the phrase, in a manner that is least as equal in quality and scope to the access to campuses and to other students that is to provide it to any other employer. General Clement, do I understand, with respect to that brief, that offered a statutory interpretation to avoid a constitutional question, your answer is that would be an unreasonable interpretation of the statute that we now have. And if, if we're talking about a predecessor statute in 1968 from the Vietnam days, uh, th- that this would have been a highly academic question because there weren't any such policies in any law schools uh, with respect to recruiting. No, that's true, Justice Ginsburg. That's why I said in response to Justice Breyer that I think that the proper point to start the focus on is the, is, is the 1994 Solomon Amendment. And at that point, there is a question about this policy. At that point, the American Association of Law Schools does have its recruiting policies beginning in place. And I think the, the, the provision has been amended a number of times in the years since 1994. There have been changes in the scope of the funding that's covered. First student aid funds were put in, then they were taken out. And then this is the most recent iteration of the provision. There's no question that what's at issue here is more than just the Vietnam-era concerns about ROTC presence on statute, because that's addressed in a different subsection of the statute. That's addressed in 10 U.S.C. 983A. So this provision, 10 U.S.C. 983B, is specifically addressed at the problem of access to campuses for recruiting. And I think especially when you read the statute in light of the relevant history, the prior administrative interpretation, and that being codified and ratified by Congress, it's very clear that this phrase, in a manner that is at least equal in quality and scope to the access provided to any other employer, is just that. It's a regulation of the manner of access once access is granted. And it addresses this difficult question of, if you allow some entry and access onto campus, what level of access is sufficient? And so I think what, — What does Title X uh, of the United States Code deal with? It, it, it deals with the military. Why, why do you choose to defend this uh, uh, principally on the basis of the spending clause and not on the basis of what it, what it was seemed to me uh, enacted in order to achieve, and that is uh, the congressional power to raise and support armies? Well, Justice Scalia, I think the statute is clearly supported under both provisions under the spending authority and the Article I authority to raise and support armies. I think if, in answering your question, we tended to focus on the fact that it was a spending condition because we thought under this Court's precedence that made it an even more straightforward case. We certainly think it would be constitutional, even if it were a direct imposition, and we certainly think the fact that this is an exercise of Congress's undoubted authority to raise and support an army uh, is relevant to the constitutional analysis. And if I could move over to the constitutional question and, and, and address that for a minute, I think one of the arguments that's raised on the other side is that there's an interference with associational interests in this case. And I think there are other statutes that, frankly, have much more of an interference with a university's uh, associational interest. I mean, Title VII, for example, regulates who can be members of the university. And I raise that also because another provision in, 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 title, in, in terms of the same area of the military requires that there not be discrimination against veterans in hiring and employment. 
And you could easily see that a university could take their position to its logical conclusion and say, in order to show just how much we don't like the military's policy, we're not only going to not let military recruiters on campus, but we are going to not hire former military people, veterans, and we're not going to admit them to our classes. Now, who's in the classroom and who's a member of the university? That would be rather far-fetched. The, the, the pitch that's being made is an equality pitch, that we are teaching our students equality, the equal stature of all people. So I think that your example does not fit. Well, with respect, Justice Ginsburg, I'm not sure I understand why not. It's the same idea. In order to teach equality, that there should be no discrimination against homosexuals, we're going to exclude, A, military recruiters, and while we're at it, the former military as well, because they voluntarily joined the forces knowing that they had a discriminatory uh, practice. It's no stretch of the imagination to think that the principle that's being articulated by respondents would stretch well beyond simply a direct anti-discrimination motive. For example, NYU, this is in the, in the joint appendix at page 153, NYU for three years had a policy of excluding recruiters from the state of Colorado simply because Colorado had passed Amendment 2, which this Court uh, dealt with in the Romer case. And so it's not a matter of, of saying that, well, you know, the only thing that's at issue here is excluding employers that are themselves discriminatory. The free speech interests that are articulated on the other side would extend to any basis for criticizing the military, whether it was not liking the war in Iraq, the war in Afghanistan, or the discriminatory hiring policies. I also think with respect to the issue of discrimination, it's worth pointing out here that there's more than one way to understand whether or not the military's policy is discriminatory. Certainly respondents are entitled to view it as being discriminatory. But the Congress that mandates the same policy towards homosexuals, I think, is equally entitled to look at it and say, no, there's no discrimination going on here because you have to take into account the special role of the military. Okay, but even <clears throat> even if you do that, um, you're, you're still left, it seems to me, with the problem, whether you characterize the, the, the problem as discriminatory and anti-discriminatory uh, university policy or not. You're still left with the speech problem that they raise, uh, that, in effect, you are forcing them, in effect, uh, to underwrite your speech up to a point, and you are forcing them to change their own message. You are forcing them into hypocrisy uh, uh, in, in one alternative. And those arguments don't depend upon the, dis- the, the, the sort of the discriminatory character of, of what may be at stake. I think that's exactly right, Justice Souter, and I think those arguments would be the same even if what was going on here was a a concern about the military's other policies. You would still have a concern that the military is being forced onto campus to make its own speech, and you would still have the concern that that interferes with the, with the message. So the discrimination or no discrimination, you, you've got a speech issue that you're going to address. I agree. I mean, I think ultimately that cuts in our favor because it shows that the other side's position is not limited to this narrow context, but is a much broader First Amendment claim. Now, turning to that First Amendment claim, I think what's wrong with that claim is several things. I think with respect to what the, the military itself wants, it simply does not want uh, — a, a primarily a speech activity to take place. It wants access for recruiting, which is a traditional commercial enterprise. It is an activity that is something that is regulated by Title VII and other federal statutes. Sure, there may be some incidental speech involved in that, but primarily it is an instrumental activity designed to get you know, It happens in this case to be specifically authorized by the Constitution. 
It, it, it does indeed, Justice Scalia. And I think, though, I mean, there is this sense in which we certainly concede that there may be some incidental speech involved. Certainly, the military recruiters are engaged in speech. I'm, we're not sure that's really the relevant speech. But even the university itself. No, but you're making a kind, if I understand what you're saying, you're making a kind of O'Brien argument that the, that the burden on speech, whatever it may be, is an incidental burden to something else. Well, that, I think we have to draw this line between recruiting on the one hand, which is what the military wants to do, and the Solomon Amendment on the other hand. And as I understand it, the Solomon Amendment is directed or is responsive entirely to positions taken by law schools on, among other things, First Amendment expressive grounds. So that if we are going to address the Solomon Amendment, I think we are addressing an exclusively First Amendment speech expression issue. Well, Justice Souter, I guess I, I, I'm, I'm inferring that you're drawing that conclusion from some of the statements of some of the floor sponsors about their purposes in acting the Solomon Amendment. I mean, if you look at the text of the Act alone, I don't, I don't know of any other reason for the Solomon Amendment. Well, I, I think the reason for the Solomon Amendment is to ensure that military recruiters, in fact, have an equal opportunity to recruit the same pool of individuals that all the other employers are trying but, to recruit. But, they're, they're, but the Solomon Amendment, in order to accomplish that, is addressed to a particular expressive problem which occurs for the military and for the law schools, for that matter, in, in law school recruiting. So it seems to me that — I mean, my, my only point is that the Solomon Amendment seems to have one objective — Whereas the don't burn your draft card uh, rule in O'Brien had two or, or had a, let's, let's say, had a primarily non-speech objective with an incidental speech burden. Here, the sole objective in the real world seems to be an expressive objective. Well, if, if by re ex the expressive objective you're talking about is the military's own recruiting, no, I guess I agree with you. Yeah, but the expressive objective is the law schools are taking a position on First Amendment grounds. That position is interfering with military recruitment. No question about it. I don't know how much, but I will assume that there's no question about it. The Solomon Amendment is addressed solely, as I understand it, at the expressive activities which have as you say, this interference. Its sole objective is expressive. No, I would disagree, Justice Souter. If the, if, if the law schools were denying access to military recruiters for any reason, be it a First Amendment reason, that they say it's a First Amendment reason, or just because they couldn't be bothered, the Solomon Amendment would be written exactly the same way, which would say, look, the military has an opportunity to get onto campus, and once it gets there, it ought to get the same basic opportunities as other employers. You cannot convert a law into a law directed at the First, at First Amendment rights, can you, by simply saying the reason I am disobeying it is to express whatever? disaffection with the war, my objection to homosexuality, or anything else, or to homosexual discrimination, or anything else. Does that convert it to a law directed against the First Amendment? Absolutely not, Justice Scalia. And I would go further and say it's also not a problem if, in the real world, the conduct that Congress sought to regulate was, in fact, in practice, generated by First Amendment concerns. I think that describes O'Brien. Well, well, let in, me in ask another question that may shed a little light on it. Uh, does the Solomon Amendment pose any restrictions on the extent to which the 
law schools can distance themselves from the military's views. Can there be signs up at every recruitment office saying our law school doesn't agree with any discrimination against gays? I mean, can they come forward with their position on this in every recruitment office without violation of the amendment? Yes, they can, Justice O'Connor. I think there would be, in fairness, I want to be clear, I think there might be a line where there would be the recruitment office could conduct itself in a way that would effectively deny access. But I think with that caveat, there is nothing but in the Act that prevents the university from Let me ask you this question to follow up on Justice O'Connor's thought. Can, are you saying that the school can engage in speech expressing its views about the military policies? Can engage in symbolic speech by affording access, which is equal in all functional requirements, but yet sends a message that they are really disagreeing with what's going on by, say, let uh, law school say, well, for most employers, we'll let you use the regular law school placement facilities, but for the military, we will require you use the college facilities to send a message that we disapprove if the college facility is equally uh, good as a matter of functioning. Well, Justice Stevens, I would say to the to, — I think the main thrust of your question, no, which is to say that if what you have in mind is really forcing them to go to the undergraduate campus, I think the military would take the position that that's not equal in scope. Now, if there's a way, is though — not equal because of the message it sends or because it denies the opportunity to recruit as effectively? It's the latter, Justice Stevens, and only the well, latter. I had an example where they were equally, equally effective as a recruitment uh, uh, avenues. Could they could they uh, make the military take one that was equally effective, but it sent a message that we really don't like what you're doing? I mean, I, sort of like own, a sep- separate but equal. Yes. Well, I mean, I guess I'm 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 resisting a little bit just because I'm not. Sh- I think it would depend See, on the, the hypothetical. The, the point I mean, I'm trying to make is: Does your agreement that you can engage in speech by posting banners or handing notes apply to symbolic speech? It could have conduct that is symbolic speech. It could apply to some symbolic speech, I believe. It's just I'm having trouble because in a practical matter, if you look at the record here, I think it's telling. If you look at the joint appendix at, at pages 215 and 219, it describes the real situation at Boston College. And they want to say that, well, it's not really much of an imposition on the military because all you have to do is get the, the recruiting list from the reserve desk at the law library and then go to the main that's campus, which is a mile and a half away. But that's the, re- the resistance difference. to any statute, I assume, could be justified as symbolic speech. Well, I, I, and, and I think, I mean, I'm, I think that some resistance by some parts of the university might be fine. I think if the recruiting office, this was a caveat I tried to give Justice O'Connor, if the recruiting office engages in conduct that effectively negates the access that they're providing, then I think you would have a different situation. General Clement, can you be affirmative now? Because we have an example from Justice Stevens, which is the Yale example. It was the main campus instead of the law school. What the recruiter is there, he's in the same room that other recruiters use. What can the law faculty do to disassociate itself from to say that we don't tolerate discrimination of any kind. What can the law school do concretely while the recruiter is in, in the room? 
I mean, concretely, they could put signs on the bulletin board next to the door. They could engage in speech. They could help organize student protests. I would draw the line, though, at saying that they have to go to the undergraduate campus, because I think as a practical matter — They could organize a student protest uh, at the hiring uh, interview room so that everybody jeers uh, when the applicant comes in the door, and the school could organize that? The school could organize — When it's, it's, say, a job fair — and all the employers are there, but then they jeer, just the, and the school organizes a, a line jeering, the, uh, the, both the recruiter, recruiters and the applicants. That's equal access? I think that would be equal access. I think you have to draw a practical I'm line here between, uh, between access and allowing the speech. But I think it ha- you have to be — You're not going to be an Army recruiter, are you? <laughs> I don't think the military and the Army recruiters, and I, and I won't be one of them, but I think the Army recruiters are not worried about being confronted with speech. They're worried about actually not being allowed onto the same level. Well, well they're worried about having students driven off. And if you have jeering and picketing, do you really think that that fulfills the purposes of this amendment? I don't know if it would fulfill every purpose, but I think the amendment has to accommodate the you First Amendment interest jeering, of the university. Jeering and picketing if a black person uh, came to recruit and the people didn't, and the school faculty didn't like blacks? Oh, I, I, think I, that I, would, I think that's an extraordinary position you're taking. Well, but, Justice Kennedy, I think you have to distinguish what the Constitution would allow the government to do and what this statute does, which is to say, I mean, what you have in mind is We're a race example. talking about the practical meaning of equal access. Right, but the practical meaning has to turn on the statute at issue. And Title VI, for example, in the race context, forbids all discrimination because of race. And so some of the conduct that you have in mind may well violate that statute. And if Congress wants to write a different statute that provides more rights to the military, we would be here defending it as as valid First Amendment legislation. But this statute gives not a right to be free of any discrimination, but a right to equal access. And we think that the right way to frame that inquiry is to say, access, yes, but be respectful of speech. And the last thing I would say, if I could reserve the rest of my time for rebuttal, is simply that it's worth remembering that the recruiting office is not the heart of First Amendment activity on campus. And if the recruiting office acts in a way that ensures access and the rest of the university engages in speech, that's a common-sense way to accommodate the interests of the military recruiters and the First Amendment, if I may reserve. Thank you, General. Mr. Rosencrantz, we'll hear now from you. Thank you, Your Honor. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court, this case is not about whether military recruiters will be barred at the campus gates. Congress had a law on the books that guaranteed entry to campus, but that was not what Congress really wanted. So it passed a new law. What Congress really wants is to squelch even the most symbolic elements of the law school's resistance to disseminating the military's message, which is why it gave us the current version of the statute. The current version isolates for regulation the most communicative aspects uh, of the law school's resistance. The law schools are saying — I'm sorry, but the most communicative aspect is saying what you think about a particular policy. This is conduct, denying access to the uh, military recruiters. Your Honor, this is a refusal to disseminate the messages of the military recruiters. It is a refusal to send emails 
post bulletins uh, and make arrangements for mutual exchange of ideas. It is conduct only in the sense that they are moving molecules, but it's speech that they are being forced to engage in. And I have to emphasize, this case is not about entry. The Solomon Amendment does not require schools to give entry to military recruiters. It requires them to give entry to a recruiter only if they provide entry to some other well, now that So if you had a policy that we're going to deny any employer that uses tanks, do you think that would pass muster under the Solomon Amendment? Well, Your Honor, for a pacifist religious institution, absolutely. What about Yale Law School? No, because it has no morally based, conscious-driven reason for refusing to disseminate that message. Oh, where, where do you find that? It has to be a morally based, conscience-driven. Well, you're we're talking about freedom of speech, not the religion clauses. Well, Your Honor, what I'm saying is. Under the under this court's jurisprudence in the First Amendment, it's actually relevant whether the reason for refusing to disseminate the message lies at the heart of the First Amendment. Well, is, is what about Hurley? Is there something deeply moral or conscience-driven about the the position to exclude? The, the gay rights contingent in, in, her, in the parade in Hurley? Well, Your Honor, it, it was certainly a reason that they gave, and it was based upon a political view of the legitimacy of homosexuality. So but I, I hasten to add, I'm not arguing that that is a required element of a compelled speech claim. I'm simply arguing that when someone has a reason for resisting disseminating a message, that situates it further, closer to the heart of the First Amendment. Congress came back after uh, it well, had excuse a me. That, I, I understand that so far as the associational claim may go. But so far as the speech claims may go, I don't understand it. Your Honor, I can I, say or refuse to say anything I want to for any reason I want to, however bad that reason, however non-moral that reason is. And, and I don't see how in the speech, uh, on, on the speech claims, we, we get into moral basis at all. Your Honor, I, I accept that as a proposition of uh, the compelled speech doctrine, absolutely. And what I'm trying to point out is that in this case, what Congress has done is to engage in the most viewpoint-oriented regulation of speech. The reason Congress does not uh, the reason Congress is insisting that the law schools disseminate the recruiting messages is because of the message of the law schools it doesn't, themselves. It doesn't, insist, it doesn't insist that you do anything. It says that if you want our money, you have to let our recruiters on campus. Yes, Your Honor, and under the doctrine of unconstitutional conditions, the, uh, the analysis is exactly the same. Under, what about South Dakota against Dole? South Dakota had a constitutional <laughs> right under the 21st Amendment to set whatever drinking age it wanted, and yet we upheld the spending clause condition that if they accepted federal funds, they had to set their drinking age at 21. Yes, Your Honor. And in um, subsequent cases, and in fact in Dole itself, this Court pointed out that all bets are off when there's a superseding constitutional right. Here we're talking about the Bill of Rights and the First Amendment. I mean, Rosenberger and Rust. There's the right to, uh, in the Constitution, to raise a military. That is a government interest, for sure. All government interests what, what, can be what traced. You're, what you're arguing is that what is 
for all intents and purposes, conduct can be infused by the school at its option with a First Amendment quality. Your argument would allow uh, schools to exclude anybody in uniform from a cafeteria. Absolutely not, Your Honor. Why not? Because what the law schools are engaging in — It's it's solely for an expressive purpose. Your Honor, there's a difference between refusing to uh, abide by a universally applicable regulation of conduct on the one hand and the Solomon Amendment on the other uh, hand, which is refusing to assist the dissemination of a message. Recruiting is all about speech. Yes. What do you do about the the cases where we have required colleges to to allow uh, some student activities to put forward their views on campus when other student activities are allowed to do that. Uh, it seems to me that that flatly contradicts the proposition that when you compel an institution to permit somebody else to speak, you are violating that institution's First Amendment rights. Well, Your Honor, that is for public schools, uh, and public schools are subject to uh, the First Amendment rights of those who want to enter their forum. But there is a critical difference between that forum, Your Honor, which the schools opened up to everyone, and the forums in career services, which the schools filter on the basis of one very important... No, but Mr. Rosencrantz, isn't the... I thought the distinction was that in, in determining the forum for recruiting, the university is speaking... The university isn't creating a forum from a lot, for a lot of third parties. It's speaking itself. And I understand the essence of your claim to be that its speech is being affected, either by being mixed with something it doesn't want to say or by being, in effect, forced to support it doesn't, something it does not want to say. Your Honor, it's important to keep in mind that there are two messages going on here, and they are clashing. There is the military's message, with, which the schools are interpreting as Uncle Sam does not want you. And there is the school's message, which is we do not abet those who discriminate. That is immoral. And, and you both take, Mr. Rosencrantz, that same position if this was not special to law faculties. I mean, we're told that recruiters could go to the main campus. Most of these places, the restriction is limited to the law faculties. Suppose it was university-wide policy that we do not give equal access to military recruiters. I think your argument says it doesn't matter if it's special to the law school or the whole university. Do I understand it? Yes, Your Honor. If the university had such a policy, then the university would be able to enforce it. Uh, but I hasten to add, the medical, university so for me- medical schools, we can't get medical schools for our armed forces. Uh, chaplains the same way, because it, uh, school teachers who teach on a military basis, in order to make the point. Your Honor, at this point, and for some, and that's, sev- that's all for an expressive reason, uh, uh, Justice Kennedy. For several decades, law schools have had these policies and applied them to career services offices. No other schools within the university. But the government takes the position that the law school is entirely free to convey its message to everyone who comes. Yes, Justice O'Connor. So how is the message 
uh, affected well, in that environment? Let me answer in two parts. First, of course, under the compelled speech cases, the ability to protest the forced message is never a cure for a compelled speech violation. But, but what's going on — I'm sorry, but on, on compelled speech, nobody thinks that the law school is speaking through those employers who come onto its campus uh, — for recruitment. Everybody knows that those are the employers. Nobody thinks the law school believes everything that the employers are doing or saying. That's correct, Your Honor. But again, endorsement is also not an, ele- an element of a compelled speech claim. But let me, let me bring those two questions together on a factual point. The law schools are disseminating a message that they believe it is immoral to abet discrimination. But when they, they can dis- say that to every student who enters the room. And when they do it, Your Honor, the answer of the students is, we don't believe you. We read your message as being that there are two tiers. There's a but double there The reason they don't believe you is because you're willing to take the money. What you're saying is this is a message we believe in strongly, but we don't believe in it to the that, tune of $100 million. That's right, Your Honor. And the, the, the problem with this Solomon Amendment is that the unconstitutional conditions doctrine says that you can't put a private speaker to that crisis of conscience. May I just be sure I have one thing straight? The, the content of the compelled speech, as I understand it, is you're aiding in the recruitment of the armed forces, Right. That's and correct, so Your it Honor. would still have been compelled speech if 25 years ago Congress passed a statute saying, a university, you must allow our, your people on campus to recruit. And they, some, for some reason, didn't want to help. But that, that would have been a violation of the First Amendment of the school if there were no other debate, just they didn't want the uh, Army on, because they had to uh, provide facilities that would aid recruitment. Uh, yes, Your Honor, if it was, certainly if it was against their conscience to do so, so that it would have violated the First Amendment during World War II. When he, whenever they are trying to raise an army, if they had compelled an, un, an unwilling university to provide recruitment facilities to the military. Well, yes, Your Honor, unless there is a compelling need. And the difficulty with the Solomon Amendment well, it would is be that — compelled speech, though, in your view. That's the kind of speech we're talking about, anything that helps the military raise an army. Anything that — not anything that helps the military raise an army, any communication that a school is required to engage in. Okay, so isn't that the point? I mean, your, your point is not that, uh, as I understand it, that for any reason, if, the, if a university for any reason during World War II had excluded recruiters uh, and there had been the equivalent of the Solomon Amendment, that there would have been a First Amendment problem, is I, uh, is maybe I don't understand your argument, but I thought your argument was or is that if they do it for some purpose of conscience, which implies a message, e.g., if it is a pacifist college, there would be a First Amendment problem. But if they're doing it simply because space is short and they would rather provide one more biology classroom, there wouldn't be a First Amendment problem, World War II or today, would there? That is absolutely right, uh, correct, uh, Justice Souter, which is why I answered your very early question. With an so you, you are saying that, that, that every time somebody gives as his reason for violating a law that he wants to send a message that he disagrees with that law. No, Your Honor. That raises a First Amendment. No, Your Honor. Every time someone says that as a reason for refusing to host a message of an, un- of an unwelcome messenger, that's a compelled speech. So, so in, in fact, to be clear, 
uh, you also think schools that are angry at the military because they're too favorable to uh, uh, gays in the military. They have the same right. Absolutely, okay. Your Honor. They're also the same right, Bob Jones University, because they disapprove of social mixing of the races. If to answer the first hypothetical first, if that's a matter of conscience, absolutely. All right, so, so what? And, and there are a lot of people in the country. May, they don't mean there's few anyway. May not believe in uh, either affirmative action. They may not believe in. Uh, uh, de, uh, they may not believe in diversity. They may not. They may even believe in racial segregation. For all I know, I hope they're not too many. Your Honor, there might, and and those people all have the same right. Well, they have the same uh, First Amendment right. Yeah, okay. So if, that, if that's the case, then, of course, uh, it's going to be pretty tough but Your Honor, for the military to get people on campus. And I just wonder if that's an important need, why you don't have here what I'd say is normal in the First Amendment area, that the remedy for speech you don't like is not less speech, it is more speech. Your Honor, the problem with the Solomon Amendment is that the government is demanding absolute parity. We have a statute before us that demands exactly the same services without regard to whether the military actually needs them. In order for Congress to justify the parity requirement, which is the only statute before this Court, Congress has to state a need. It has to say why it needs Here's the need. How about this? Uh, we, we have said in, in, in our opinions, and I'm quoting from uh, Rosker versus Goldberg, judicial deference is at its apogee when legislative action under the congressional authority to raise and support armies and make rules and regulations for their governance is challenged. And that's precisely what we have here. Your Honor, this Court defers to Congress in matters of the military when the, con when the military or the Congress is especially expert and this Court is especially naive. This Court has never deferred to a congressional statute about military when — It has anything to do with, with expertise. I think it has to do with immense national importance. Your Honor, it has to do with expertise as well. That's precisely what this Court but said. I, I would like the answer to my question because I'm thinking, as you correctly say, if you have that right, so do all the, se the worst segregationists you can imagine, etc. And, and here, yeah, and here there is a, uh, a need of some kind to get the military in. And what the government in this statute asks you, because I personally couldn't find anything in the record that finds that student who thinks by letting a military person in that the school, which basically is completely against the military in this area, suddenly becomes for it. And I haven't even found in the record an instance where there was a recruiter who told people that they couldn't join the military uh, if they were gay. So we have not a tremendous demonstration there of a need on the university side. And my question was, what's wrong with the government saying, university, you disapprove of what we do. The remedy for such a situation is not less speech, it is more speech. Your Honor, Go and explain it. The direct answer to that last question is that all bets are off when what the government is doing is compelling the speech of a private actor because the government is not allowed. Does it compel the speech of a private actor when the government says colleges and universities you are not going to get federal money if you discriminate on grounds of race or gender. And we don't care what your private attitude may be. We will refuse to contract. We will debar you from 
future contracts if you don't not only say we won't discriminate, but have an affirmative action plan? You know that is not hypothetical. This was the U.S. policy in the early 70s. Yes, Your Honor. I, I, I understand the hypothetical, at least uh, uh, especially as to the first half, which links to Justice Breyer's earlier question. There is an enormous difference under this Court's jurisprudence between anti-discrimination laws and the sort of law we have here, uh, uh, the Solomon Amendment. And the difference is uh, the government, it is both, uh, both on the needs side and on the infringement side. On the needs side, the government has a compelling interest that is different from just regulating the conduct. The compelling interest that the government has is a completely separate interest in seeing to it that not a penny of federal money ever goes to support an institution that taxpayers would not be um, uh, in a position to go to. That's Bob Jones and Norwood. And on the infringement side, this Court has said that the act of discriminating against individuals is entitled to no First Amendment protection, regardless of whether there's a First Amendment right at stake. And I should add also that the vast majority of schools that are subject to Title VI or to Title IX have no such expression that is uh, at stake. They are not articulating a message we really need to discriminate on the basis of race or on the basis of gender. Mr. Rosenkranz, could you tell, tell me which elements of your argument rest upon compelled actual speech and which rest upon compelled symbolic speech, because the, the latter, I have to tell you, I'm, I'm not very fond of. Uh, what compelled actual speech uh, is imposed on the interview? You mentioned something about emails. They have to send emails uh, uh, to, to say where the recruiter will, will be located. Is, well, is that the compelled speech you're worried about? It is, Your Honor, it is the forced hosting of a messenger with oh, a that, specific That's symbolic message. speech. I'm talking about actual speech. What expression is the university, real, exp you know, words, words. Well, is the university the, compelled to utter under, by this legislation? Under the parity requirement, what the university is compelled to do is sit down with employers and help counsel them on what their students are interested in and how best to shape the message. The Third Circuit went out of its way to point out that, and the National Association for Law Placement Brief is very compelling on that. They also have to disseminate literature, post bulletins on bulletin boards, help the, the uh, recruiter, or excuse me, the um, law firm, develop cocktail parties. Oh, I, I suppose when you, when the police knock at the door and say, you know, I have a warrant, I suppose somebody has to say, come in. Is that compelled speech? No, Your Honor, there are. Does that raise a First Amendment problem? It, it does not, and there are uh, many circumstances in which words are used that are incidental to an action. These are not words used that are incidental to the action. But what's, hap what's happening here is the prospective employers, the recruiters, are proposing a commercial transaction. And it seems to me quite a simple matter for the law schools to have a disclaimer on all of their uh, emails and advertisements as they the law school uh, does not a, a, a approve and, in fact, disapproves of the policies of some of the employers who you will meet. Your, Your Honor, no, that's the end of it. No matter what the government does, it cannot convert the career services enterprise into a value-neutral proposition. For the law school, from its perspective, it's, it's especially value-driven. Yes, the uh, — The law schools have, have, a, have a, an interest in the Constitution that other people don't? 
Uh, Your Honor, I'm not claiming any exceptionalism for the law schools. The AAUP AAUP brief does a brilliant job. I suppose under your view, uh, law schools really shouldn't permit firms, law firms on campus, if those firms, say, oppose take litigation positions opposing gay marriage? Your Honor, as Dale points out, it's up to the private institution to decide what its but metrics that's, are that's going your to position. Be. Your position is the schools could and, and probably should do that to make their message known. My position, Your Honor, is that the schools are entitled to make their own judgments about what messages they will disseminate. Uh, Even with reference to commercial, proposed commercial transactions. Yes, Your Honor, but I would hasten to add that is not what recruiters are doing. It is no more commercial than what United Foods was doing in an advertising saying uh, or resisting the message, mushrooms are good. Do you agree with the government that that the statute, uh, as fairly interpreted, uh, is violated when a school uh, which uniformly applies to all employers, the rule you can't come in if you have the uh, discrimination against uh, hiring gay people. Yes, Your uh, Honor. You, you agree that it is violated? Yes, Your Honor. The statute focuses on the manner of providing access, and the manner of providing access is through the career services. Would you require any accommodation? I mean, you, you have said it's up to the faculty to choose which Causes to assist, I think you put it that way, or one of the amici did, and which to resist. And you've already told me that this happens to be the law school, could be the whole university. Could the law faculty or the university take the position, we're not going to, we don't like your message, and we are not going to let you have any of our facilities. We're not going to give you the room on the, on the main campus, just a total bar. Your Honor, we're certainly not advancing that position here. The Solomon Amendment requires no such thing. The Solomon Amendment does not require that schools give entry uh, uh, to military personnel. No, it says you school, must do it only if the other guy does it's it. A school, as a matter of its own policy, says we don't like discrimination. And we're not going to give discriminators access to any of our facilities, period. Uh, Your Honor, are, you're asking me what I would be arguing for my clients if they were actually making that? I'm that? asking you if there are any obligations, since you've said there is a compelling state interest, compelling government interest in recruiting. Is there some obligation to accommodate, or could the faculty just say, we choose the causes that we assist and the ones we, we resist? And, and that is as to entry to campus, Your Honor? You're asking yes. Uh, we are not pressing this point to the Court. If the Court is asking what my opinion would be if I were to I'm asking if, if, it is the, if it logically follows from your position about choosing the causes we resist and the ones that we assist. Your Honor, if I were advancing that argument, it would be this is a viewpoint discriminatory statute which is subject to uh, uh, strict scrutiny. The government is advancing a single message. And even when the First Amendment rights uh, that are at stake are minimal under this Court's opinion in RAV, uh, strict scrutiny would apply. The government has never come forward with a shred of evidence that it actually needs to be on campus as opposed to directly off campus or as opposed to publishing notices uh, in uh, uh, student publications or advertising. So, but, but we are not advancing that argument. About the, the government's message, the, the, the message is join the Army. Is that right? 
Yes, Your Honor. The message is join the Army. What the schools hear is — That's a viewpoint discriminatory Absolutely. No, I'm sorry. The viewpoint discrimination, Your Honor, is in the congressional statute that says we will force you to host a single speaker with a single message, just as in Pacific Gas. Join the Army. I'm sorry, Justice Stevens. The message is join the Army. The, the single message is join the Army. That is correct. And the government is promoting only that one message. But this — I thought your argument was the single message is Join the army, but not if you're gay. Yes, Your Honor. And, that is — which, which leads me to the question in, in, re, in re, response to your answer to Justice Ginsburg a moment ago. In your view, is the compelling interest on the part of the government recruitment uh, or the refusal to accept gays? The, the compelling interest on the government side is the recruitment interest. We're not arguing that the government has a compelling interest in excluding anyone. That's precisely why. No, but are you, are you saying that the government, that the only compelling interest argument that the government can can raise here, is is the discriminatory argument? Since nobody denies uh, that if the government were were recruiting without the discrimination, that there would there would there would be no no problem. It would be, everyone would agree with, that that was a compelling interest. But I, I thought your argument on compelling interest was that the only compelling interest that the government can assert is the discriminatory interest. No, Your Honor. What I'm saying is if the government wants to assert a need, it has to identify the need. It has to say we need more than contact information. We need more than uh, a room, uh, entry to campus, a room on campus, a posting on a bulletin board. We need everything. The story of the Solomon Amendment, Your Honor, is the story of uh, private institutions trying desperately to accommodate the government's need, even in light of their own moral scruples. Well, the speech is on their side. The government just says, let our recruiters in. So why isn't it sort of like pay the property tax? I don't want to. I hate the government. Well, Your Honor, I'm withholding the money because I want to express my message. The, the speech is on both sides because the schools are being forced to host the government's message. The message is join the army. The message, the message of the property tax is pay the, for the, the, the government's expenses. The, the message that the schools are hearing is join the army, but not if you're gay. And the schools have been trying desperately to accommodate the government up until the point where Congress says, we don't actually want any of those things. We want them only if you supply them to someone else. We want them only if you have a viewpoint-based reason that you don't want to give it to us. There's some reason in, uh, uh, in the law school's uh, conscience or the academic institution's conscience that it wants to treat this category of employers differently from any other. Congress is — And you're perfectly free to do that if you don't take the money. Your Honor, Congress here is imposing a sanction, uh, which this Court has treated as exactly the same as a penalty. Suppose that a law school faculty could decide that it does not favor a particular war and uh, use that as the basis for excluding recruiters. By allowing this recruiter to come on campus, you are making me uh, uh, speak in effect uh, to our students saying 
join the army and fight the war that we're now engaged in. Your Honor, again, we're I not — I want to do that. Now, we are not talking about coming on campus. We are talking about affirmative assistance to the highest degree yeah, in disseminating okay, fine. I'm saying the same — The answer is yes, but Your I'm Honor. I'm saying you, you would say that the same situation would apply if the uh, university faculty does not favor the particular war that the United States yes, engages in, and therefore — uh, obstructs the uh, the effort to raise Honor, the army, it's very not allowing them to come on. It campus. is very important to distinguish obstruction from refusal to subsidize, which at the government's instance this court has been doing for 30 years. It's the obstruction when you refuse to give them what you give everybody else. It is refusal to treat them the same as everyone else because they are not the same as everyone else in the law school's estimation. And the Fighting government. The war. Well, the government has to identify precisely what its need is, why it needs Yale College personnel rather than Yale — excuse me, why it needs Yale Law School personnel rather than Yale College personnel. May I ask you this point question with that very uh, point in mind? Does it necessarily follow, if there, there are occasional applications of this statute that might be invalid, that the whole Solomon Amendment needs to be struck down? Your Honor, the, 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 this is not about application of um, uh, the statute in one circumstance. Uh, the whole statute has to be struck down because the, the government is demanding absolute parity, and there's no way for this Court to rewrite the statute. We don't know whether Congress would go back and go to the entry requirement, just bare entry, to entry plus, or to a parity requirement, which, is, which it is now shifted to. So there's simply no way to know exactly how Congress would rewrite the statute. But this is, at its heart, an as-applied uh, uh, challenge. It's about law schools with non-discrimination. Discrimination policies. Thank, Thank you, you Counselor. Uh, General Clement, you have four minutes remaining. Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice. I'd like to make just a few points in rebuttal. First of all, in starting with the compelled speech problem, there are only two kinds of speech that are at issue here. First, there is the compelled speech of the military recruiters. And no one thinks that that speech is being misattributed to the schools. Even in the secondary school context in Mergens, this Court understood that secondary students could distinguish between the school's message and that of school groups. Now, the second piece of speech that's at issue is that of the university when they incidentally send an email around telling the students where the military recruiters are going to be on a certain day. And certainly in the context of recruiting, that kind of incidental uh, speech does not implicate any compelled speech doctrine. In the Title VII context, for example, if an employer says that there's a job opening and says that to a white applicant, it has to say the same thing to an African-American applicant. Nobody would think that that other — saying that to the African-American applicant, which is, of course, compelled speech by Title VII, violates the Constitution. I would also say, just as the last point on compelled speech, that it's something of a stranger in a strange land in the context of this case, since we are talking about a funding condition, not a compulsion. Second, let me move to the argument that the respondents have about trying to distinguish this case from Justice Stevens' World War II hypothetical. And as I understand it, it boils down to the argument that the way that the legislature was reacting here to this problem and observing what it observed on campus somehow implicates 
different constitutional issues, different First Amendment issues. And I think the O'Brien case stands as an obstacle to that argument. In that case, if you look at it, the argument was exactly the same. There already was a prohibition that required you to have your draft card with you. Congress then passed a second statute that prohibited burning your draft card. Now, what did the representative say about that? Well, Representative Bray of Indiana said that this was an effort to get at communist stooges and beatniks. Now, this Court did not strike the statute down on that basis. It looked at the text of the statute and upheld the statute as a reasonable statute. Let me also then move to what you could call the Bob Jones problem. And I think you have to be cautious about interpreting this statute and applying a rule and having it come back in the context of other statutes that even the law schools like, like Title VI and Title IX. I don't think it's enough to simply say that race is going to be different. For one thing, federal statutes also prohibit, as a condition on funding, university-wide, discrimination on the basis of disability and on the basis of age. Now, those aren't things that trigger heightened scrutiny, and I think one has to be worried about converting this rule in this case to something that's going to threaten those statutes. This Court in Hishon, for example, made the point that all discrimination can be recharacterized as somebody simply saying, exercising their associational rights. I don't want to associate with you because you're female in Hishon. You have to be leery of that kind of recharacterization. The last point I would make is that there's simply no limit on respondents' argument in this case. I don't think their matter-of-conscious limitation is going to be enforceable by the courts. And beyond that, I think even in this case, there is more at issue here than just the military's policy on homosexuals. If you look at the original statement of the American Association of Law Schools, which is in the Joint Appendix at 246 and 249, they were concerned first and foremost about the military's policies on homosexuals, but also about their discrimination in sex on what kind of combat roles that women could have, what they call career-advancing positions. So even if Congress changed Don't Ask, Don't Tell tomorrow, presumably the law schools would still be here protesting the military's position on gender or perhaps the war in Iraq or perhaps the war uh, in Afghanistan. And the last point in showing there is no limits on their position is, as Justice Kennedy pointed out, any conduct can be imbued with communicative force just by saying, we're opposed to this and therefore we're going to engage in this conduct. That's simply not enough to generate a significant First Amendment interest. Thank you. Thank you, General. The case is submitted.